Welcome to the second half of our episode. I hope you had a restful break there, Sean. I did, and I hope you did as well. So before we get into Mona Lisa, as Claude will tell you, uh, the movie features Michael Caine and Bob Hoskins. Now, this was not the only movie that came out that year that they both appeared in. They appeared in another movie, a comedy about a university professor and his uh, attempts to make sure that a movie version of a Revolutionary War book that he wrote gets made in the right way. What was the name of that movie and who is the guy who wrote, directed, and starred in it? I will give you a hint about the latter. Oh, I know this one. uh, The guy who wrote, directed, and starred in it was best known at the time for a TV series he had been the star of for all of its long run. But he later became a regular on another TV series that both Claude and I are fans of. And I will have the answer to both parts of that trivia question at the end of this half of the episode. But right now, Claude is going to give us the plot description for Mona Lisa. I totally know that one. All right. So Mona Lisa, excuse me. Under the opening titles, we see a man crossing a bridge in London, and he's carrying a package. He stops at a, at a florist, and he picks up a bouquet of flowers. When he arrives at his destination, which is a row house in a lower-class neighborhood, he knocks on the door, and there's a teenage girl in a school uniform answering the door. But the encounter is swiftly interrupted by her mother, who comes out shouting and cursing at him. He responds in kind, and by the time she has closed the door on him for good, a crowd is formed in the street. The man nearly gets into a fight with one of the neighbors, but another man pulls him out of the whole thing. And that man is George. He's played by Bob Hoskins. The teenager is his daughter, Jeannie, who's played by Zoe Nathanson. And the man who rescued him from the fight is his best friend, Thomas, played by Robbie Coltrane. Thomas has been keeping in touch with George, largely through sending him mystery novels. And George complains that in some of them, it's far too easy to figure out who the murderer is. And he often posits alternate, better solutions to the stories. We learn over time that George is a low-level gangster who has been in jail for seven years. And it's likely that he went up because he took the heat for someone else's deeds. That someone else is Denny Mortwell, a big league player in the local prostitution scene. And he's played by Michael Caine. But because George took that heat, however, he thinks that Denny owes him something. So he spends some time looking for Denny, but apparently Denny's out of the country at the moment. However, he's given a job to do by one of the capos. He's to be the driver and bodyguard for what we can only assume is a very high-priced call girl named Simone, played by Kathy Tyson. Simone is very hostile to George at first, and it might be because he's rather uncouth and outspoken, and he's hostile to her because he thinks she's putting on airs. She gives him money to get a decent outfit, and the clothes he picks out are no better than the ones he had on previously. Later on, they go out shopping for something a little bit more suitable, and we see a friendship start to grow between the two, but it's still somehow guarded on her side. Occasionally, between uh, jobs, she has him drive to King's Cross, which is one of those areas where the hookers will openly solicit customers, at least it was at that time. Uh, As they drive through, she appears to be looking for something, but she doesn't say what. And at one point, George notes that a 
couple of the girls are his daughter's age, and when one girl approaches him and he turns her down, she begins to abuse him verbally until her pimp shows up. From his car seat, George beats up the pimp, and they drive off. Later, in her apartment, Simone tells him why they keep going down to King's Cross. In her past, she was one of the girls down there. She had a pimp named Anderson, who would beat her regularly. She had a single friend down there, and it was a young girl named Kathy, who also worked for Anderson. She had promised to take care of Kathy, but at one point, she took the opportunity to escape. She ran away to Brighton and discovered a whole other level of clientele. And when she returned to London, she realized that these much bigger fish also existed there. So she began working on her own, although Denny was finding the clients for her. But she's haunted by the fact that she left Kathy behind and keeps looking for her, knowing that the lifespan of a girl at King's Cross is likely to be limited, especially when they're working for a guy like Anderson. She enlists George's help to find Kathy, reasoning that he'd have an easier time moving through that part of town. George meets up with Denny, and Denny gives him a little lecture on the nature of happiness, and then he says what would make him happy are the small details of life, and to that end, he wants George to find out what Simone does when she's with her clients, presumably as a means of blackmailing them or otherwise using the information as leverage. In between all of this, George has occasional encounters with his daughter Jeannie by picking her up at school and driving around a little bit, talking with her before dropping her off near her home. Jeannie has no idea why George disappeared for seven years, but she is eager to have him back in her life. George keeps drawing mental parallels between Kathy, who's about Jeannie's age, and Jeannie, and he thinks about what could have happened while he was away. And in the meantime, he's increasingly torn between his loyalty to Denny and his growing affection for Simone. At one point, he literally asks her what she does with a specific client, and she tells him that they drink tea and do nothing else. To underscore the lie, she has someone take a couple of Polaroid pictures of her serving out tea and has them sent to George while he's waiting for her. When George reports back to Denny that she's having tea and actually has photographic proof, Denny gets furious at him and tells him to get his head back in the game. Now, in between his chauffeuring jobs, George also delivers packages for Denny to various places in the red light district, so he's taking that opportunity to look for Kathy on the, on the sly. At one point, he thinks he's getting close to her, but it turns out to be another teenager who bears a superficial resemblance to Kathy. George tries to rescue her, but he's unsuccessful. On another delivery trip, he spots a porno tape and he tries to buy it, but the owner just gives it to him. When he gets an opportunity, he plays the tape and his suspicions were right. It's Simone in the video, and she's giving oral sex to a man. George confronts Simone about the video, and she confirms that the man in the video is Anderson. And Anderson, by the way, is played by Clark Peters. Anderson tracks Simone down to her apartment, and he tries to slash her, cutting George's arm instead. They manage to get away from him, and he stashes her in Thomas's place, which is basically a secluded garage where he both works on cars and he deals in buying and selling various knickknacks. Because Thomas can get stuff, George asks him if he can procure a gun. George then goes out and locates Kathy at Denny's house. Kathy, by the way, is played by Kate Hardy. He, play, uh, he takes advantage of a hidden door to sneak her away from her client, but she's badly addled by heroin. It's clear that she's deeply addicted to the stuff, and he takes both girls to a hotel in Brighton, and Kathy is in the early stages of withdrawal. So Simone sends George to a pharmacy for some drugs to help Kathy, and he gives her the gun just in case. Later on, he and Simone go for a walk on the boardwalk. Now, early on, they get into an argument, but he finally gets the whole story out of her. Simone and Kathy aren't just good friends. 
their lovers. Suddenly, Simone spots Anderson nearby on the boardwalk, and the chase is on. Eventually, George manages to get away from both Anderson and his henchmen, but they know where everyone is staying, so he knows they're not going to be safe for long. In fact, it isn't long at all after they get back to the hotel that the gangsters catch up with them. A fight ensues, and Simone winds up shooting both of them dead, but then, in the heat of the moment, she points the gun at George. George is infuriated by this and strikes her, then he takes the gun and leaves. Sometime later, we see George, who is now basically free of his obligations to whatever remains of Denny's organization, and Thomas working together under a car when we say a pair of female feet walk up. It turns out to be Jeannie, who's still rebuilding her life with her father, and the two of them walk out of the garage chatting happily. Okay, so this movie is, again, very loosely inspired by a specific fairy tale, though that wasn't its only inspiration, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, The fairy tale that it's inspired by is actually discussed or mentioned at one moment in the movie by George, and that is The Frog Prince which, like Snow White, was originally written, although it was probably older than when they wrote it, by the Brothers Grimm. And uh, if you don't remember the story of the Frog Prince, to sum it up very, very briefly, it's a uh, princess who uh, discovers a frog prince who is under a uh, spell of either a sorcerer or a wicked fairy. And um, she uh, eventually, through depending on who writes a story through different means, um, is transformed into a, the handsome prince that he used to be before the spell. Now, of course, nothing like that happens in this movie. The transformation is what happens inside George, not outside. You know, he goes from being this very bigoted, uh, very short-tempered person, very violent person, although not as violent as some other characters that Hoskins has played, to being someone who, while still somewhat short-tempered and capable of violence, is um, able to see past his prejudices a little more than he did in the beginning. And even though he doesn't understand at some part, it's in some way the relationship between Simone and Kathy, partly because, of course, that he's fallen in love with Simone. And I'm going to get back to that aspect in a little bit as well. He's clearly not the same person that he was at the beginning of the movie. He has been transformed, not through magic, but through the old-fashioned device that writers have uh, used of character development. And that 
type of thing is what Neil Jordan wanted to bring to the movie. This is partly inspired by a real-life story of a guy who was arrested for um, what was nicknamed GBH, uh, which means grievous or gross bodily harm. And um, he, when he was asked why he did this, he said that he was beating up a pimp or I think beat him to death because the pimp was abusing the women who were working for him. And Jordan liked the idea of doing that, doing a story based around that. And he, because he was busy with another project, asked a guy by the name of David Leland to take a pass at writing the story. Uh, Leland is not, maybe not be a very well-known name to you, although he's directed a bit of, and written a bit of TV there, like uh, Band of Brothers and The Borgias, the TV show that Jordan was an executive producer on. Although what I best know him for is for writing two movies based on the life of real-life notorious British madam Cynthia Payne, Personal Services and Wish You Were Here. But the version that he wrote was apparently this really gritty downbeat story. And while Jordan wanted to keep that gritty setting, he wanted to push the story more towards a fairy tale. So he wrote, rewrote it himself. Now, sometimes when Jordan has tried to push a story towards fairy tale, it hasn't always worked. And I'm thinking of the movie In Dreams, which attempted to combine the fairy tale with the serial killer tale. And despite having a very talented cast, including Annette Benning and Robert Downey Jr., in my opinion, it failed spectacularly. But in this case, Mona Lisa ended up being a breakthrough movie for both him and Bob Hoskins. And I'm going to get to Hoskins' performance uh, a little bit later. But for now, Claude, what did you think of this movie? You know, it, it was kind of funny because I, I had not seen this film before. I had to watch it specifically for this recording. And, you know, you you, you set these things up as far as, you know, modern day fairy tales. And that, I, there was a pretty easy line from A to B with, between Ball of Fire and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And I had no idea what Mona Lisa was connecting to. I was like racking my brains trying to figure it out, even though it's like uh, almost literally spelled out in the film. And I, I didn't really connect it to the frog print. So that's that's just kind of interesting. But this is this is a really good film. It's definitely a film that you have to pay fairly close attention to to get all the nuances between the re to, to understand the relationships between several of the characters. Um you know, that part is, is kind of important. Um, and I kind of discovered that because my wife watched it with me. And at one point she just, she stepped out of the room for a minute and she came back in at the end of the film. She was like, I don't think I got it, you know? And I guess she just stepped out at, at exactly the wrong moment. Um, 
but I but I said that well, you really didn't see the whole thing, and so it's 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 and and the, the it also the film doesn't it makes you work a little bit, which is not necessarily a bad thing. You really got to think to to piece together how everybody fits into the bigger picture because it's not going to be just you know color by numbers here. You really have to think a little, and that's I I, I appreciated that. And so by the time we get to the end of this story. I'm like I'm I'm invested. I'm bought into it, and I and I can I can I can say yeah, this all makes sense the way it ultimately came out. Right. Well, I saw this. I did not see this in theaters. Uh, I saw this on video sometime in the '90s, I think, or maybe yeah, because I don't think I would have seen it on cable at the college I went to, and I don't think they showed this movie um, in the U's auditorium where they would show movies that had recently been, mostly recently been in theaters, though they show, also showed a couple classics there as well. You know, I, they showed It's a Wonderful Life there one year. I think I mentioned when we talked about that movie and The Biggest Laugh, was when Jimmy Stewart and all the others bring the $2 that they have left for the building and the loan <laughs> and say, come on, let's put them in the safe and see what happens. But, um, you know, I think I saw this on video in the 90s, and it was after I had seen what the movie that most people probably remember Jordan for, and that is The Crying Game. Yeah. And that along with Mona Lisa and a couple other movies that he's done, The Miracle, which starred his then-wife, um, Beverly D'Angelo, and uh, more recently, Ondine, with um, Colin Farrell. And all of those movies involve a man falling in love with a woman who is not what she turns out to be or not who the man thinks she is at first. You know, here a man falls in love with a woman and turns out to be a lesbian. Um, the miracle, um, young boy becomes attracted to an older woman who turns out to be his biological mother. Ooh. Uh, the crying game, of course, we can say this now since it's been 30 years. Oh, yeah. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A man falls in love with a woman who turns out to be transgender. And then finally, in Ondine, a man falls in love with a woman who turns out to be a selkie or a mermaid. And although the crying game is my favorite of those versions of the story, I think Mona Lisa ranks as a very strong number two. And as with The Crying Game, even though he's got this dark story going on, which is also thanks to Leland, as he mentioned, you've got this underlying romanticism that's going on as well. Now, partly, of course, is due to the other major inspiration for the movie, and that is the song that we hear throughout the movie, which is Nat King Cole's version of Mona Lisa. Nat King Cole was not the first person 
to sing that song. It was actually written for a 1949 movie called Captain Carrie USA. And of course, the song Mona Lisa is about the uh, painting Mona Lisa by Da Vinci. But the version of Nat King Cole, which is the most popular version, was recorded a year later in 1950 with Nelson Riddle providing the string arrangements for the song. And it is, without a doubt, one of the most romantic songs ever written, in spite of the fact that it's written about an ideal woman that exists only in the singer's mind. Which, to be fair, uh, a lot of times uh, romantic love is about, at first, an ideal woman who only exists in the other person's mind. And then you learn to love the real person, not just the ideal one. But George plays that song in his car throughout the movie. And... You know, you can tell that's how he sees Simone at first, even though she turns him off in a lot of ways at first as well. And it's that tension between the romanticism and the grittiness that is one of the reason why one of the reasons why I think the movie works so well. Yeah, I think uh, it, it, we also get that extra layer of where most of what the 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 song is doing is kind of asking questions. You know, is it because you're lonely they blamed you, and do you smile to tempt a lover? Is this a way to hide a broken heart? And so we can put a lot of that on Simone in the sense that. We know she's hiding something, but we don't know why. And that's one of the big mysteries of the Mona Lisa is that smile. What she's smiling about. Is she smiling because she knows something we don't? Is she having a tender memory of some kind? And it's it's one of the things that, that really um re- that really separates this particular painting from the others. And and so I think that the fact that we use this repeatedly through the film and not just the recording of Nat King Cole, but you know, the, the music that was, that was written for this film. Um, and I'm, I'm blanking on the, I I had the music in my head and I can't remember who, who scored it, but, um, they also use some of those opening notes as a motif in several different scenes. So it was uh, Michael Kamen. Michael Kamen. I did wrote the music. Yeah. Um, and I, and I remember like like having that stick in my head a little bit because you when you get something like the score by Michael Kamen and you're listening to Nat King Cole, you know that's like a moment of of cognitive dissonance for me. But but the, but the fact is that we are constantly getting these reminders that there's something more to Simone that we haven't quite seen yet, and I think that becomes kind of important throughout the film. Right. Now, Kamen, of course, is probably best known in this country for when he was alive, for writing the music for a lot of uh, action uh, blockbuster movies, including the first Lethal Weapon and the first Die Hard 
movies. And then also the same year that Mona Lisa came out, he wrote the music for Highland, the first Highlander movie as mm. well. But um, it is a good score that he's written. Now, Ball of Fire um, was uh, relatively smooth uh, when it came to the filmmaking. It went through a relatively smooth process. Mona Lisa is something else again. Uh, This movie was made or produced under the um, film company Handmade Films, which if you don't remember, it was a company created by George Harrison. Yes, that George Harrison. Yeah, he's listed as an executive producer. Simply because um, when Monty Python's Life of Brian was getting ready to film, the uh, finance year of the original finance year of the movie pulled out. And Eric Idle um, and Mike, or Michael Palin, one of the two, or maybe both of them, happened to run into Harrison and told them about that. And Harrison mortgaged his house and put up the money for the movie simply because he wanted to see it. Idle, of course, would joke that that was that $2 million was the most anyone had ever paid for a movie (laughs) ticket. But, of course, he was very grateful. And Harrison and his uh, manager at the time, Dennis O'Brien, formed Handmade Films to make that movie. And they ended up producing a number of other movies made in Britain during the... 80s. But the problem with O'Brien is that A, he wasn't as much of a financial wizard as uh, he said he was, which Idol would later find out. And B, he began to think that he was someone who knew a lot about movies when actually Life of Brian worked because you know, they had a great script and the talented people to pull it off, and he had nothing to do with that. But he and Jordan and producer Stephen Woolley got into a lot of battles in the making of this movie. Um, if you, I'm going to get back to Kathy Tyson in a moment, but she was primarily known as a stage actress at the time. And while Jordan was immediately sold on her when he saw her on stage, as was Hoskins, O'Brien insisted that she wasn't a big enough name, and he wanted Grace Jones to play her, who would have, whatever you think of her, she would have been all wrong for the part. And Jordan thankfully won that battle. But uh, O'Brien was the one who insisted on having the Genesis song in too deep play when George is basically walking around trying to find um, Kathy. Now, I happen to like that song and I happen to think it works, but. Jordan was not very happy about that. And I can see, Claude, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I, no, I like the song. I do like the song. I 
just don't I don't think it works in that in that film and it just reminded me of like you know so many films in the 80s which felt that need to like shove a pop song in there that you could you know maybe you know cross promote or something like that to to get more people to buy the record and get other people to see the film and and, and it was like why is this here? it was kind of like um in the film white nights and using say you say me in the closing credits and i'm like what was the point of this particular song being in here so you could say it was from the film white nights and I, I was I got the same thing out of In Too Deep. I like In Too Deep. I like Genesis. I'm a big fan, but I didn't feel that that song belonged there. It didn't. I, I for me, it just didn't make a pile of sense there. Okay, I understand the argument, but I I thought it works. But anyway, uh, another um, battle is that O'Brien wanted the movie to end with Simone um, shooting Mortwell and, you know, just on that because O'Brien didn't think much of the character of Simone or the actress playing her. You know, he thought this was just a cheap exploitation movie and so he thought it should end in a cheap exploitation way. (laughs) Fortunately... Uh, the company that distributed the movie in America, which was Island Pictures, when Wooly showed it to them, they said, no, 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 we love your ending, keep it. And if that uh, guy O'Brien has anything that he wants to say about it, you send him to us. And so as a result, um Jordan and Wooly got to keep the ending that they wanted. And, you know, I certainly think that actually Palace Pictures was, is what it's uh, known as now. But um, I certainly don't think the movie would have ended. It would have worked as well as it did if it had ended the way that O'Brien wanted us. Yeah, it would have been an ending, but it wouldn't have been the ending. I, you know, I, my only, not a complaint exactly, but but I, I could have used just a teeny bit more closure with Simone and Kathy, but I'm okay without it. If that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not the only thing that Jordan doesn't br- provide an explanation for. You know, we never learn why he got sent to prison. I mean, granted, it's explained, you know, you can infer, as you said in your description, that he was uh, taking the fall for Mortwell. But it's never explained um, specifically. Yeah, and I, th- we never- I, th- I think it's subtly explained. It has something to do with heroin. And I say okay. that because of the white rabbit that he that he well, delivers that was to the other that is the other thing that never gets specifically explained is why he buys the white rabbit. Although that's a slang thing. It, yeah. Yeah, it is a fairy tale motif as well. I'll give you so that. <laughs> that uh, that works well. Now, Hoskins had, uh, I mean, this was the movie that got him, I believe, cast in 
who framed Roger Rabbit yeah. because of all the acclaim that he received. You know, he won a bunch of acting awards for this movie, except, of course, for Best Actor at the Academy Awards because they chose to give a lifetime award to Paul Newman for his performance in The Color of Money. And I say that as, as someone who liked Newman in The Color of Money. I just think um, Hoskins is much better. And it's yeah, also... Newman, Newman, Newman got the... The old hat who paid his dues but hasn't won anything award. Yeah, well, ironically, he had re- received an actual Lifetime Achievement Award the year before. Yeah. But anyway, um, Hoskins had uh, first drawn the attention of critics playing a different kind of gangster in a movie we're going to be discussing in a future episode, The Long Good Friday. You know, here he's, you know, again, he's starts out the movie playing this a guy who you would not want to know at all in real life. And yet by the end of the movie, you warm up to him because there is something good inside him. I mean, yeah, it's buried deep inside him, but it's there and he makes you see that and then of course um when he's with the girl that he thinks he's uh he thinks is kathy but isn't uh, a girl named may who by the way is played by sammy davis who you might best know for her work for ken russell specifically the rainbow which was the sequel to um, Woman in Love, and then also The Lair of the White Worm, which is one of those crazy movies that has to be seen to be believed, um, but who's also a year later appeared in one of John Borman's best movies, his autobiographical movie, Hope and Glory. But when he's with May... And um, he's uh, trying to get her to eat her ice cream. You know, he shows that, you know, in his own rough ways, he can be very tender there. Uh, His relationship with his daughter, um, he's, you can see him making an effort Mm -hmm. in the scenes that he has with Thomas. And there's Thomas sort of uh, acts like a Greek chorus for the movie, and that's very effectively used. And then finally, when he realizes who Simone is actually in love with, and then when she points the gun at him momentarily, you know, the absolute look of betrayal that he has on his face is very haunting and very well done by him. Yeah, to be sure. And and early on in this film, you you're you're actually given a, like a little bit of whiplash as far as like how you're supposed to receive this character. Cuz at first he's just some guy and he's got the package and then he's got the flowers and you think, "Okay, there's going to be some kind of reunion here." And then it turns into like all kinds of like just brouhaha out in the street and whatever else and now you're not sure what's going on and then the next thing you got is the meetup with Thomas. And then we kind of start to figure out what's been going on. And Thomas also, um, in addition to being the Greek chorus, he helps provide some of the lighter moments in the film. They just, 
you know, come off as not quite comic relief, but I'll, I'll leave it at lighter moments. I mean, yes, there are some things that he does and says that are genuinely funny, but, you know, it's not to meant to be specifically comedic. It's, again, you know, we, I've said this before. It's like he's a guy who says things funny. He doesn't necessarily say funny things. And, and so we get these various moments and then we finally get the reveal as far as, okay, he's been in jail because he's a bad guy because he's actually either done a bad thing or he's covering for a guy or, you know, maybe a little bit of, of both, but he's in there trying with his daughter and he's in there trying with may and, and, you know, and you almost think that maybe this is going to turn into a, you know, he's going to find himself kind of shattered because he has to have this moment of realizing he can't rescue every single girl who's on the street. And we don't get that, but that's okay because it's not really where the story's supposed to go. But he also has to have that moment of failure with May, I think, to pull him down just a little bit harder so that he can bounce back for the next thing, if, if that makes sense. Right. Yes. Now that makes sense. And let's talk now about Cassie Tyson. As I said, um, she was known primarily, and she's still known primarily, as a stage actress. She was in the Liverpool's Everyman Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company. And it was from that that um, Jordan, as I mentioned, saw her on stage. Or actually, I think it was Stephen Woolley who first saw her on stage, recommended her to Jordan. And, you know, when Jordan and Hoskins saw her, you know, they both said, oh, yeah, this is uh, Kathy. And she apparently was fairly, acted fairly inexperienced as far as how to make a film goes. You know, she walked off a set once, not because she was angry. It's because she didn't know any better. She thought she was done for the day. And they had to explain to her, uh, no, that's not it. And she hasn't done too many recognizable movies since then. I think she's mostly still done stage and TV. Probably her best-known movie outside of this is the movie Priest, uh, which caused quite a controversy when it came out in 1994. It was written by um, Jimmy McGovern, who's best known for creating the TV show Cracker, which is where Robbie Coltrane broke out. Um, he played the title role in that. But you do get a great performance from her in this movie where she's playing someone who, like Hoskins, is uh, like George, is a lot more than she may seem on the outside. You know, she's playing this very angry character on the outside. And, you know, she's very impatient with George at first, but then you realize she's got this very vulnerable side to her. You know, certainly she's scared of Mortwell and Anderson, of course, and she has every reason to be. (laughs) 
but she's also has these very tender feelings toward Cassie that of course this being the middle of the eighties, um, Jordan doesn't really show or at least not explicitly, but you can see it definitely from the expression on her face and Tyson plays all that very well. Yeah, I think she does. And, and what's more is, well, first it's, it's, it's also, she does these bits also in like the scenes where they're cruising down uh, King's cross. And not only is she like looking for something, you can also see she's a little bit haunted by this place. And, and that's something that's kind of tough to convey. And I got to think, especially for somebody who is primarily a, a, a stage performer, when you got to do things big and you got to, as they say, play to the back of the house and, Film is so much more subtle and intimate and up close. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, stage actors have to learn to to do things more, to do things smaller, right? Because it gets magnified when it's up on the big screen. And she really, really was able to do that sort of subtlety that, that, makes the character really stand out for you. I mean, she does get some moments where she gets, you know, uh, like just like full length shots and she gets to move and she gets to flow a little bit and that kind of thing. But that does not take away from her ability to, to really emote well when the camera's in on her kind of close. Right. And speaking of the camera, the cinematography of this movie was done by Roger Pratt and he also does a good job of invoking both the darker elements of the story and the sort of uh, fairy tale romanticism that Jordan was after. And speaking of the darker elements, Michael Caine, of course, has played a lot of different character, different types of characters throughout his career. And, you know, he's played good guys, he's played bad guys, he's played uh, anti-heroes. But I can think of only two other roles in his career that he's gone this dark in his performance. And that, of course, would be the title character in the original version of Get Carter, not the... uh, thoroughly misconceived and misbegotten remake with Sylvester Stallone (laughs) in the title role. And then also um, a rather underrated 1990s film neo-noir directed by Bob Rafelson, Blood and Wine, with Jack Mm. Nicholson giving one of his more underrated movies. Um, Kane plays... uh, in that movie, someone who's uh, maybe not well health-wise, he's coughing a lot throughout the movie, but that doesn't make him any less menacing. I mean, even Nicholson gets freaked out by uh, some of the things he does in that movie. And, of course, this movie. And he doesn't have a lot of scenes in this movie. As a matter of fact, he filmed all of his scenes in one week, but 
you can see why Simone is scared shitless of him throughout the movie. Because this is a guy who is not afraid to get his hands dirty at all and who has absolutely no morals whatsoever. Even when he's attempting to be jocular, like in that scene in the bathhouse, or I don't know if that's what they call them in Britain, when he's telling this very ribald joke, uh, he's very menacing in that scene as well. Yeah, and that's all he's doing is telling the joke. But you can yeah. also tell that there are people with him who are listening to the joke and the laughter is like, you know, ha ha, boss, you know, like that, that sort of thing it, it is they're 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 kind of going along with the joke and maybe even heard it before. Um, but, yeah, it, it's kind of cool. He does this kind of affable bad guy thing in here. And there's really only, I think, one scene where he is truly like meant to scare you a little bit like you know and it's a scene between him and hoskins and he just loses his temper and he like knocks some stuff over and he hollers at him and then he's all back to like now you know do the right thing or i'm going to have to like you know break you in two kind of and 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 it almost he's this and this would have been probably around the same era was like i'm thinking of like hannah and her sisters where it was the same kind of thing it was like yeah and 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 he and he's he's not a good person really in this film, but so much of the film comes from his viewpoint that you're kind of getting on his side, and then he goes and he does this bad thing, like you know, lusting after his his sister-in-law, and 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 you have to kind of like, you know, take it into your head that like this is not the person you think he is, and so. You know, it, it, it's one of those things that you, you would like to see more of him doing that sort of thing because it's just so kind of cool where he does that 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 smooth, dangerous sort of you know kava python kind of routine. You know, well, I think you know a lot of actors are not comfortable always going there, mm-hmm. and maybe that's why. But yeah, he is excellent in this movie. And someone else who is also uh, good at being menacing here is Clark Peters, who most of us, of course, know from The Wire. Mm -hmm. But he was actually living in England at the time because, of course, opportunities for African-American actors in Hollywood in the 80s were not very good. So he went to England where he could find more work. And even though he is playing a character who is somewhat of a stereotype, a pimp, he doesn't bring any stereotypical aspects to his performance. Mm -hmm. He just makes him pure menace, pure and simple. And... You know, he represents the danger. He and um, Wartwell represent the danger element of the movie and the grittier element that, of course, balances out the romanticism part. Yeah, and and, and as you say, is like he is he is pure menace. Like every time you see him on the screen, you just know there's trouble to be had. Like you know, and Kane pulls off the opposite. You know, you you kind of get lulled in, and then suddenly you realize. Oh my gosh, I'm in trouble here. You know, when when Anderson is there, bad things are about to happen and you need to get out quick. 
Okay, so do you have anything that you want to add before I answer the uh, trivia question of the episode? Just one more thing. We did mention about about George Harrison being one of the executive producers on this film, but there is also another famous person who is listed in the credits, and he's listed as a special production assistant, and it's a man by the name of Richard Starkey, MBE, who most people know as Ringo Starr. Oh, wow. I did not remember that. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to look at the... See, I'm uh, always about the fun credits. <laughs> on the uh, IMDB page, uh, see if I can see his name there. And while I am looking for his name, I will answer the trivia question for uh, this episode. The other movie that both Michael Caine and uh, Bob Hoskins appeared that was released in 1986 and very different from this one, that movie would be Sweet Liberty. Yeah. And it was, it was written and directed by and stars Alan Alda, who, of course, was uh, best known at the time for playing Hawkeye Pierce on every episode of the long-running CBS sitcom MASH and would later appear as a regular on season six and seven of The West Wing, the show that brought Claude and I together. And um, in Sweet Liberty, which unfortunately, Fortunately, is not as good as you'd hoped, given the talent involved. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Saul Rubinek are uh, other actors who appear in the movie. But um, it was on the set of Sweet Liberty that Michael Caine played a bit of a prank on Bob Hoskins by telling him that he had been offered the role of Mortwell in Mona Lisa, but he had decided not to accept it. So Hoskins was rather surprised when Kane showed up mm. on the set of uh, Mona Lisa. So Sweet. That was a nice little uh, joke there that was played. But uh, as far as where you can watch both of these, both uh, Ball Fire and Mona Lisa are available on DVD. Uh, Mona Lisa is also available on Blu-ray, uh, maybe 4K as well. Um, Ballfire is available on regular DVD. Mona Lisa is available on a regular DVD. And then also a Criterion Edition Blu-ray, which is the one that I own. And it has a insightful commentary from Jordan, which is where I picked up a couple tidbits here. But if you prefer to watch these online... Ballfire, you can stream um, on Canopy if you subscribe to that through your local library. And also on the service Plex and on YouTube. Or if you're willing to put up with the ads, you can watch it on Pluto TV. Or you can rent it or buy it exclusively through Amazon, Apple TV, or D DirecTV. As for Mona Lisa, you can only stream it on the Criterion channel, 
Max or Max if you subscribe through Amazon. Yeah, so what's coming up next time around? Uh, next time we have part two of our updated fairy tales um, episodes. And the reason why I'm calling it updated uh, will become clear when we talk about the, the first of the two movies we'll be discussing in our next episode. Those two movies are from 1993, The Bride with White Hair, which is not a modern-day movie, <laughs> but was directed and co-written by Ronnie Yu, and from the year 2011, Hannah, directed by Joe Wright. Uh, Bride with White Hair is available on DVD, but it might be a little expensive to find. Hannah is available on DVD and shouldn't be that expensive, and Blu-ray. But if you prefer to watch them online, um, Bride, with White T- Bride with White Hair, you can only rent or buy through Apple TV, whereas Hannah... You can currently stream that on Netflix with or without ads, depending on your subscription. And you can also watch it for free on USA Online, or you can rent or buy it through Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, and most other streaming services. And we have our own website, which is wordsandmovies.com. And we have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash wordsandmovies. And we now have an Instagram page, which is uh, instagram.com slash wordsandmovies. Do I have that right? Words and Movies Pod. Words and Movies Pod. Okay. And I am also on Facebook under my name, facebook.com forward slash Sean Gallagher. And I'm still lurking on Instagram. (laughs) I will get around to posting on it one of these days. Uh, And how about you, Claude? Uh, Yeah, you can find me on the Book of Face under my own name, Claude Call. And you can check out the podcast, How Good It Is, at howgooditis.com. And if you have a question or a comment, feel free to email us. Our email address is wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you folks next time. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. And Alex, please take us away. This is your announcer, Alexander Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Spotify for podcasters. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.